Good morning, everybody. Out there online, welcome wherever you are around the world, whenever, whatever your time is. Welcome, glad you guys are here. Hey, before I get going, um, I want to talk to you about something kind of serious. Uh, I was talking to my good friend Matt this morning. He was showing me, he had his phone out, and he was showing me another uh, of the many apps and games that you can get on your phone. Um, Gabe is obsessed with Wordle. Um, <coughs> and, but there's so, remember Candy Crush? Does anybody do that anymore? Remember that? I don't even remember what this one is called. But I have to, I have to admit that I've been, I've allowed myself to become a little obsessed with, with some of those things, some of those distractions, you know, and they can, sometimes they can become idols in our lives and they can become distractions like that. And I just have to come clean with you that I have been, I have developed an unhealthy obsession with some of those games, some of those apps that are on your phone. But God is so good. I have developed what it is, is an obsession with the hokey pokey. And with God's help, though, I was able to turn myself around. Dad joke. Okay. All right. All right. Raise your hand if I got you. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I had to hit one. Happy Father's Day to all your dads. It, it is, it's a dad's job to do that. And I feel like in some ways I'm dad to everybody here, so I had to. It was my job. I couldn't let that down. All right. Hey, welcome. Let's move on to something a little bit more, more fun than that. And that's the gospel of Mark. Um, I'm having a hard time with this. Woo. Yes. I'm, I love, I love getting to teach to you guys. I love the way that the more you study and the more you look and the more you pray about it and the more you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about the Word of God, the more He just un, un, unveils things to you. It's like, you know, the, the metaphor I've heard is like you're unpeeling an onion. You know, each layer has something new. And that's a good metaphor, but if you don't like onions, that's not that great of a metaphor. But I, it's just so exciting. The more you dig and, and you can know about a scripture, you can think you understand it, and then God just reveals something new to you. And to me, that is so exciting. When we talk about the Word of God being alive and active, that's what it means to me, is that every single time the Lord will speak to you through scripture in a way that addresses what you're going through in your life that day, in that moment, in a way that maybe you've never seen before. And, and I just find that so exciting. So that's why I'm excited to get to share this message with you. Again, Gospel of Mark, if you're out there online, we are trying, by the way, a new online platform uh, today. Still Facebook, still YouTube, um, and still through our website. So you still get to it that same way. But the things that we used to do with an outside service, we've now taken in-house. Our master genius um, AV guy, Jeremy Kreft, has figured out a way to do all that stuff here in-house, so our cameras will be much more active and things going forward. But today, we call this our beta day, right? So, so if you go back and watch any of our online platforms, or if you're out there watching us now, there may be a little glitchy in some things. We're getting that straightened out. Um, but God is good, and it's going to be amazing as we go forward. Let's get into it. Let's get into the Gospel of Mark. So we've been watching the ministry of Jesus as he travels around the Galilee area with his disciples, um, performing miracles and healing 
and delivering people from the demonic and just over and over again, just showing the power of God that is manifest in him. Now remember, he, he is God. He's part of the Trinity. But as he walked around doing ministry, he was all human. And the things that he did were through the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And the whole point of showing those things was to draw attention to the source of that power. Not to him. He didn't want personal glory. In fact, he tries, as Mark documents, tried very hard to just keep things down until it was right. He didn't want personal glory, but he did want the power of God to be known. And so we see that happening all over, all over through the gospel of Mark. And then we start to see that his disciples, those people who were closest to him, followed him around, ate with him, slept in the same camp, sat around the campfire at night, walked miles upon miles throughout, heard his teaching, his closest friends, the people closest to him, still had a really hard time with the message that he was trying to give them. And as time got closer to his fulfilling his destiny in Jerusalem, which we'll see very soon, he starts being less and less cagey about what is about to happen. And he just starts explicitly saying, this is what's going to happen to me. And if you ever talk to somebody, maybe it's your child or somebody, and you talk to them and they nod at you like they're understanding, but you know it's just going right on through. I picture that happening with Jesus and the disciples because he says it again and again and again in different ways, hoping that it's really going to start sinking in. And we see that especially when it comes to those people who chase worldly riches and status and power and and the accolades of the world, they're going to have a really hard time with the whole concept that we shouldn't be seeking any of that that we should actually be seeking to serve. And that's how in the kingdom of God you become great, is by serving. Remember the story of the rich young ruler. He totally struggled with it. He could not get his mind around it. The sons of thunder, as we saw last week, some of his closest disciples, they still didn't get it. Right in the middle of Jesus saying, look, I'm going to be taken and hand it over to the Gentiles, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be killed. And they're still in the middle of that. Their response is to struggle for position. How can we get a seat of honor next to you? So they just had such a hard time, and it's hard to blame them when 2,000 years later, in all this hindsight that we have available to us now, we still struggle with that idea. This is why the Scripture is so appropriate to everything that we go through. Now, there's a little bit of a shift that we're going to find in our teaching today. We're in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. It's a fairly short section. <coughs> Excuse me, your Bible might have it, blind Bartimaeus is healed, or blind Bartimaeus, or something along those lines. And it's just one single story that may seem really straightforward, but there's so much to it, like that onion idea. When you, when you unravel it, it becomes so much more than it might be at first. So Jesus had, in his idea, he had kind of stopped like, okay, the, the healing, the miracles, the deliverance, those sorts of things. That time is over. Let's just make our way to Jerusalem so that my destiny can be fulfilled and we can, and we can get on with this. So he's not really looking 
for more opportunities to heal and deliver, but he's not going to pass them up when they're presented to him either. So that's where we find ourselves. The very first scripture, Mark 10, 46. Then they came to Jericho. And later, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a beggar who was blind named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Few things to know about this. When they're, last week when they were ministering and they were doing all their things, they were kind of on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Jordan River kind of bisects Israel in a lot of ways. And so they were on the eastern side in this area known as Perea. Now they've crossed over the Jordan. So they're on the west side of the Jordan. They're headed towards Jerusalem. And one of the first towns they come to is Jericho. And so now, this says in a large crowd. This was a very well-traveled. And if you were here last week, I showed you the pathway. The path between Jericho and Jerusalem is very well-traveled. We would call it a, you know, a superhighway today, although then it wasn't really, didn't look like that. But it was very well-traveled. Travelers going both ways, traders, all kinds of things. So when it says a large crowd was following Jesus... Some of them were his disciples, some of them were curious, but a lot of them were just like, hey, we're going that way too, let's all walk in a group so that we can hear what this guy is saying, and and why wouldn't you travel in safety in a bigger group? So there's quite a mob around Jesus right now. Now, the beggar who was blind named Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus was no one really of note. We don't know much about him either before or after this, but his name alone gives us a little bit. In the Hebrew language, the word bar means son of. So Simon Bar-Jonah, sometimes you see that. In this case, Bartimaeus, it means that this blind beggar, his name is really the son of Timaeus. His father was named Timaeus. So he's the son of Timaeus. And he's blind and he's sitting by the road. He really wasn't anything of note. We do know he was a Jew because of the way that his, that his name is arranged there. So we do know that about him. Now we also know from the history and the way things work that these, these beggars would have strategically positioned themselves along pathways where a lot of people pass by. Sometimes it was out in front of the temple. Uh, sometimes it was along a very well-traveled road like this. And so this Bartimaeus, his daily routine, he'd get up every day and he'd gather his stuff and he would go out, sit along this road. Probably had a very common place that he was always sitting there at. Now, I want to take a very short detour here. I'll try and keep it short. When you read scripture, a lot of people will point out, and a lot of people just love to do this, point out the things that don't seem to make sense with each other. Sometimes they call it a contradiction. Sometimes they'll say, well, this, this says there were two people. This says there was one person. Well, our answer can be, well, if there's one or if there's two, then there was definitely one at least, right? And sometimes we see these things and we have to, we have to reconcile that in our heads. And many, many people will get so caught up on that that they just can't go past it. So when I see things like that, I want to point them out just so that they make sense to you. And in this case... It's very straightforward. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke also talk about this very same interaction that's happening here. But Mark and Matthew both mention that there were two blind men sitting alongside the road. 
okay? At least it looks that way. Now, if there's, if there's two, then there's definitely at least one. So there could be Bartimaeus and Steve. I doubt that was his name. But we're focusing on Bartimaeus for this issue right here. So it's definitely not that one is right and one's wrong. If Matthew mentions that there were two, then there were two. But we're focusing on the one. Maybe because Bartimaeus was the one that was more well-known. Maybe Now, Luke doesn't mention names at all. He doesn't mention names at all. So you get these different perspectives based on what they thought was important for the, the story and the idea that they were trying to tell. Now, Mark and Matthew both also say this, and this is important, that they were leaving Jericho. If you're reading in any of those other Gospels, it says, it says that they were leaving Jericho when they bumped in to Bartimaeus. Luke, Luke 18, says that Jesus was approaching Jericho when this happened. Doesn't seem like a big thing. Were they approaching it or were they leaving it? So we can just say, I don't know. I don't get it. But I want you to understand, and here's what's happening here. There are two Jerichos. Wouldn't automatically go there. Let me explain it to you. There's the Old Testament Jericho, the old city, right? Destroyed in 1400 BC when Joshua, remember, and his army went around it and they destroyed it. Let me read you the part from Joshua that explains what happened here. Joshua 6, I'm going to read you verse 21 and 26. And this is right after the walls had come falling down, right? The old song that everybody knows. Joshua 6, 21 they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox, sheep, and donkey, with the edge of the sword. They literally destroyed and flattened everything in this city. Verse 26 then, then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he will lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. So he set a curse on that whole city like no one will ever rebuild this, this cursed town again, never again. So now we fast forward 1,400 years to the time of Jesus. Jericho was at a crossroads. It was a very important strategic location. There was going to be a city there of some kind. But how do they reconcile then? We can't rebuild it because... There's a curse on this spot, but we want a town here is what they do. About a mile away, they build another Jericho. So there's a new Jericho. The New Testament Jericho we're talking about right here is about a mile southeast of the old ruins. Now, let me show you a couple things. Here's a picture of what remains today. This mound right here, you can see some people walking if you can make that out. That's what Jericho, old Jericho, looks like today. It's basically just a mound. You can see it's not huge because those are people down below. It's not giant. Now, see up on the top, you can see what looks like some buildings encroaching. Just like today, Colorado Springs and Denver are merging together into one city. But it wasn't quite that way. They were separated by a mile. Let me show you the next one. This is what it looks like today. So if you can see this pile down here, that's old Jericho. They have built nothing on it. They have done nothing to it because that is cursed ground. It's still there for tourists to walk through. And then 
up north, up top is the, is the newer Jericho. It would have been much further away and smaller, of course, in Jesus' time. But it's there. You can go there and you can see it. So that's what we're dealing with here. Matthew and Mark are saying that Jesus was leaving old historical Jericho because the path, the path went through there. So they were leaving that. And Luke says as he was approaching Jericho, he meant new Jericho. So there was that space in between, that mile-long space in between the two of them. That's what we're talking about. So is it theologically important? No, but it helps us understand that those things people call contradictions are not contradictions. We just need to understand what was happening. So back to the scripture, as Jesus and this, call it a mob, his own disciples plus all the people that decided to just walk with him are walking by, Bartimaeus... This blind beggar overhears the conversation in the group. And this is what he hears, Mark 10, 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now you can picture this. He he probably hasn't been outside of Jericho maybe in his whole life for a long time but being right next to the side of the road. In those days, that was the information highway, literally. So he had heard of people talking about this, this Messiah, this, this rabbi, this, this Jesus of Nazareth. And so he knew when he heard the voices, this is that guy I've been hearing about. You ever hear that if you lose one sense, the other ones kind of expand? And take in some of that space. He probably had very keen hearing. And so he could pull out different conversations. I'm just guessing. Scripture doesn't say that. But that's what happens. Mark 10, 48. Many. Now he's calling out to Jesus. Many many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now beggars in that day especially. But even today. They don't. You don't make a living by being quiet. You don't make a living by being shushed easily. And so when they're trying to shush him, he just gets louder. It's like, have mercy on me, son of David. If he didn't take this chance now, he may never have this chance again. This Jesus of Nazareth was passing right by him. Now I have a question for you guys. When he, when he cried out and asked for mercy, do you think that he wanted healing of his condition? Do you think he even knew that he could ask for that? Or did he just know, this is a king, and this king's got some money, so throw some money my way? Which one do you think it is? We'll get a clue in just a minute, but I don't know that he even knew that he could ask to be free of the bondage that his blindness had created. Even today, I think about this even today, how often do we ask and do we pray for a temporary solution to our situation rather than permanent freedom that Jesus can offer? We pray, Lord, I, I can't make rent this month. Please make another couple hundred dollars show up in my bank account, which is a legitimate prayer. That's a legitimate prayer. But how often do we stop there? Instead of of saying, Lord, take me out of this place where I'm constantly in in turmoil. Just something I like to think about here. Mark 10, 49. And Jesus stopped. 
So he's calling out. People are trying to shush him. We know from past scriptures that doesn't work out well. Mark 10, 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So he didn't call him. He told the crowd, call him over here. Totally changing their mindset from keep him away to call him here. Call him here. So they called the man who was blind, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He's calling you. Now this is, I think, the first example I can see, other than the disciples themselves, of, of believers calling people, give, offering that invitation on behalf of Jesus. And Bartimaeus doesn't, he doesn't hesitate. Pay attention to this second verse, this next verse, because we're going to circle back around to it. Mark 10, 50. And throwing off his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Excuse me. That seems very, okay. So he gets up and he comes to Jesus. Jesus just called him. What's significant about that? This is the most significant verse in this whole thing. But hang on to it, because we're going to be right back to it. Hang on. Here's an image that I pulled up. For you, again, you visual learners, and I know it's kind of dark. It's actually an old fresco. But Bartimaeus on the right, wearing just, at this point, just simply a tunic. And then Jesus and the disciples on the left. We don't know if it looked like that. That representation of the tunic, the the undergarment that he's wearing, that's kind of what I want you to just mentally log in as as we're talking our way through this. Mark 10, 51, and replying to him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the man who was blind said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. All right, that answers our question. Did he know that he could ask for healing or was he just asking for money? He knew, he had heard that Jesus could do this. And so that's what he wants. When he calls Jesus Rabboni, it's the highest form of the common term rabbi. Rabbi simply just means teacher, but rabboni, that was really reserved for, typically the president of the Sanhedrin was called that, but very well respected rabbis, you might use that term. So Bartimaeus, he knows, not only does he know he can ask for healing, but he's saying it with the utmost respect because he's heard the stories and he's believed in his heart that Jesus of Nazareth can do this for him. Mark 10, 52. And Jesus says to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. No ceremony, no laying on of hands, no, no spitting in the dirt and putting mud in his eyes, no spitting on his fingers and sticking them in his ears, none of that stuff. He just simply says, Go. Your faith has made you well. And I want you to notice a couple things. Jesus didn't first ask this man to repent of his sins. He didn't say, repent and then come to me and then we'll do this. He didn't do any of that. Jesus didn't even ask him to. And man, that that just spoke to me that grace freely given with no strings attached and no expectations of any kind of a response has so much more power has so much more power than any conditional offer ever could. Grace freely given. Romans 3.24 says, Being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How many times do we put conditions on that freely given grace? 
We want to say, I'll give you grace as soon as you recognize the error of your ways and you repent. Now, I'm not saying the repentance isn't hugely important, but it's not a condition of grace. Grace has nothing to do with that, and we should all be thankful that it doesn't have anything to do with grace. Grace freely given. So this man's response, his response, he leaves everything behind and goes and follows Jesus. Now, he probably didn't have much being a beggar. He probably had just the clothes on his back and maybe some eating utensils. I don't know. But he didn't have much. So there wasn't much to leave behind. But he gets up. Now let's go back to verse 50. Let's look at verse 50 again and see why it's so significant here. Mark 10, 50. And throwing off his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Common dress at that time was a two-layer affair. You had a tunic underneath and you had a cloak over the top. A tunic could have been like a one-piece nightgown, kind of a nightshirt sort of a thing, or it could have just been what we would call it kind of looked like a diaper that he was wearing, but you just wrap it around. You're you're very, very minimal, right? I don't even know how to say it. I almost said something bad. You know what I'm talking about. We would just call it underwear, right? But here's the thing, that, that outer garment, we call it a cloak. Scripture typically calls it a cloak, but that word also translates as mantle. A cloak or a mantle are the same thing in this translation. And a mantle, have you ever heard a mantle being something that signifies who you are? Like you took on that mantle of leadership. The mantle, typically we see it as a good thing. But that's what the cloak would signify in those times. If you had a very fancy cloak, maybe it, was, maybe it had some golden threads or maybe it was dyed purple, something that would indicate like you're an important person to those people who saw you. Well, beggars were no different. By the way, this is not the first time that the word or the idea of a cloak being used to signify who you are was used in Scripture. That actually goes all the way back to Genesis. Um, Remember Joseph and his father? Remember Joseph and his father? Joseph's father, Israel, made him a very, very um, ornate cloak to signify who he was. Genesis 37.3. Now Israel loved Joseph. Israel was Joseph's father more than all his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a multicolored tunic. And that tunic became a symbol of Joseph's identity. Now it didn't play out that way in the near term as he was stripped of that and thrown in the, thrown in the pit and sold into slavery. But ultimately that, was, that signified his destiny, who he was going to be. We see that throughout Scripture. But this man, this man was a beggar. Bartimaeus was a beggar. What could possibly have been special about his cloak? There was plenty that was special about his cloak. This cloak, the one that Bartimaeus would have worn in in any town like that that had any Roman influence especially, would have been a specific type of cloak that identified him as a beggar. That basically identified, today we'd say that's your license to go be a beggar. So there was something special about this cloak that was issued to him to to separate him from those other beggars who were just charlatans trying to get money. So when you were going along this path and you saw a beggar sitting there and he had on this specific cloak, you would know this man has been authorized to come and beg because he has no other means 
to support himself. And so it was his identity. It was an important part of his identity. Without that cloak, he may not make enough to survive. He needed that cloak to signify, I am a beggar. I have nothing to offer society. I can't do anything on my own. I am just fully dependent on the mercy of others. That's what this cloak signified. But notice how quickly he cast it aside when Jesus called him. It doesn't say, and he slung it over his shoulder and packed it away for later, just in case. When Jesus called to him, he stood up, and this thing that was the instrument of his livelihood, it identified him as somebody that could receive and should receive the mercy of others. It was his livelihood, and he stood up, and he cast it off immediately. He gave up that thing that was his identity, his life-saving identity, the thing that sustained him every day was his formal identity as useless. So he woke, every, woke up every morning, put on this cloak that signified, you're pathetic. You are nothing. You are of no importance. And just to keep you alive, you're going to wear this cloak and go out so people can give you whatever cast-offs they have. That's the identity that Bartimaeus spent his life under. And with Jesus' invitation, he threw that behind and walked away from it forever. The rich young ruler, remember that? He couldn't cast aside his identity. His identity was money and wealth and land and and power and status. He refused to cast that aside, even knowing that's what it took to get him into the kingdom of God. He refused to. He just couldn't do it. But Bartimaeus had no such problem. Why did he not? Remember the parable about the camel going through the eye of a needle. Jesus says it'd be easier for that to happen than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he's not saying that just because you're rich, you can't enter the kingdom. He's not saying that at all. But Bartimaeus has nothing to, he has nothing to offer. He has nothing to lose. He has nothing to leave behind. But he has everything to gain by stepping into this new identity that Jesus is calling him into. Whereas the rich young ruler couldn't do it. He had too much to rely on. When Jesus says they need to come to me, these little ones need to come to me like children, that's what he's talking about. You're not looking for gain. You're not looking for what can I get out of this. You're not worried about what you're leaving behind. You're just focused on Jesus. And today, today, this day and every day, if our goal is to be closer to him, closer to Jesus and receive what he has for us, we have to be willing to throw off anything that hinders us in that process. Anything that would slow us down in coming to him, we have to be willing to do it. He may not ask you to, but we need to be willing. We need to be willing to throw it off. And not just the things that we would call sins. Not just the things that we would say, okay, unforgiveness open sin in our lives. Those things hinder our relationship with Jesus. So yes, we need, to, we need to repent of those. We need to walk away from those. Absolutely. But what about those things that are not so easily identifiable as sins? What about some of those things? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, I'm going to read it for you. 
Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You wonder the answer that the sons of thunder should have taken? What do I do to sit down at the throne of God? You need to be willing to throw off everything. And some of that thing they were struggling with is pride. They were struggling with pride. Those obstacles, when we look at every obstacle and the sin, he breaks it into two different things. So some things, open sin, we can all talk about, and most of us would agree what is sin and what isn't. But what about obstacles? These obstacles can be anything that we place in a, in a, in a place of importance in our lives. Now, some things we could say, that's an idol in your life, but some things are not so easily identifiable, even as idols. So things like money, jobs, hobbies, we can kind of see when they rise to that place of being an idol in our life, right? Um, um, I'm not, I'm not going to spend time with God today. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to read the Word. I'm not going to go to church. Whatever it is, I'm not going to do that today because I would rather go golf. I would rather go work. Whatever it is, I'm not putting down golfers. But if you're out there, you should have been here. Anyway. Anyway, see, some of you are. But what about something else that's not quite as obvious? A burden that you are not meant to carry. Would you call that an obstacle? anything that hinders us in our race running for God, would you say a burden you're not meant to carry is an obstacle? Let's talk about that. One of the first invitations that Christ offered was an invitation to lay down your burdens and just rest. Remember that? That's from Matthew. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. I've got it on screen here. Jesus' invitation, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Anyone? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Anybody feel like you need that? Amen. Amen. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. Now, we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, which is where everything started, really, right? From the tree... Remember, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what was the problem with eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was it just simply that God said, don't eat that fruit? I'm working on it. Leave it. It's not ready. Was that the problem? It was because their eyes were opened to things they were never meant to carry, to burdens, to troubles, to to sins, to embarrassment, to different things that God didn't want them to have to worry about. And they took that on. And so what happens when you take on these burdens that weren't meant to be your problem, you create in your soul, in your heart, you create the very opposite of the invitation that Jesus gave you. You will find rest for your souls. What's the opposite of rest? Unrest. It's not a trick question. 
the opposite of rest is unrest. And if you had to use one word to describe our society in general today, would unrest fit very well? This overwhelming sense of personal, social, political, religious unrest today. I see entire church denominations being torn apart because of different ideals. It's, it's unrest is permeating everything in our society, and it's a direct result, in my opinion, of our inability to trust in a sovereign God, to be in control of those things. We somehow think, if I'm not involved in this fight, or if I'm not standing up for that truth, or if I'm not protesting this, or standing up for that, or that, that somehow the world's just going to go to hell if we don't fight for it ourselves. Who is our advocate? Jesus. Who's the one that's going to fight for us? Jesus. He will do that. And so to have our eyes on the darkness and spend our entire life and, our, and an overwhelming amount of our day cursing the darkness rather than praising the light, then we have taken on a burden that we weren't meant to. Now, I want to clarify, there are those who God has called specifically to stand in the way, to stand up and, and yell from the rooftops that righteous fight. There are those, but it's not all of us. And it's always, even if you are that one that God has put a sword in your hand and said, go fight, we're supposed to do it under his banner, not ours. And we're supposed to do it with love and mercy. Not just mowing down everybody in our path in the name of righteousness. That's not how it's supposed to work. So here's a question. Why wouldn't we, as an individual now, not as society in general, just us individually, why wouldn't we be willing to accept Jesus' invitation and lay down your burdens? Lay down your cares and your troubles and your worries and just take his yoke. Why would we not? Can you reconcile that in your mind? Why wouldn't I be willing? Why do I spend my life in turmoil all day long when Jesus says, just lay it down and take up my yoke? It's easy. It's light. I'll give you a hint. Jesus wants to take that heavy burden. Who wants you to keep it? And better yet, who wants you to add more onto it? until it's unbearable and you collapse because you're crushed under the weight of a burden you shouldn't carry, Satan. George called it out immediately. He knew exactly where I was going. It would have been so easy for Bartimaeus to cling to what he saw as his safety net in his identity and miss that chance to drop everything unencumbered by any burden. There was nothing holding him back and follow Jesus. And that's what he did. But it would have been so easy for him to say, this is who I am. This is my life. This is what I do. I can't give that up. But he didn't do it. Whenever the word of God is preached, whenever and wherever, literally in this, in this entire earth, where the gospel message is shared with another individual. Or even just when all creation testifies. 
about God. Wherever that is happening, just like Bartimaeus, Jesus is passing by. Jesus is passing by and he's calling to you. He's saying, come to me. That burden you're carrying, that burden you live with, that identity that you've taken on, give it to me because I have something better for you. Wherever that's happening, Jesus is passing by just like on this pathway. And he's calling out for you to join him. And then the choice is yours. So he's not going to come. You never see him go and grab somebody by the neck and yank them and say, you're coming with me. You have a choice. He always offers us a choice. Are we going to be a citizen of the world, focused on advocating for or against the things of the world, or are we going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, first and foremost? That choice is yours. But here's the thing. Once you make that choice, your response and your responsibility becomes clear. Are we going to curse the darkness or are we going to praise the light and follow the giver of that light? It's our choice. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. But Lord, we have an enemy. We have an enemy of our soul who wants us to focus on the train wreck coming our way that wants us to focus on the rough seas, that wants us to focus on the things we don't have but we wish we did, that wants us to focus on all of the evil going around in the whole world today. Lord, help us to see our place in your kingdom. Lord, if we are one of those that you have called to stand up and fight, help us to do it in a way that glorifies you. Help us to do it in a way that people will know it's the truth. Not because we say it, but because you said it. But Lord, if that's not our burden to carry, whatever burden we are carrying that is not ours to carry, Father, show us that burden right now. Show us that thing we're devoting way too much of our energy to that you want to take from us. Father, I pray that we are bold enough and we are willing, like Bartimaeus, just to throw off that hindrance, just throw it off and walk away. Not looking back, not even caring where it lands. Just walk away from it and walk into what you have for us. Father, we want the light. We know the darkness exists, but let us not spend our lives focused on the dark. Let us praise the light. Let us praise you in every storm. Jesus, we love you, and we praise you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to take communion as Tom plays on. When we take communion, I want you, some of you, when I prayed that, it wasn't enough time. Or maybe you're still struggling with or reconciling, like, Lord, this is, this is who I am and what I do. How do I set that aside? How do I set that aside and just follow you? If you need that time, I want you to take it. Take it. We're going to serve communion now. And if you need to sit here through the first couple songs or even beyond and just reconcile in your heart with God, 
We have prayer team in the back. Look for somebody with a lanyard. If you just need someone to help pray with you, see them back there. And they can help you. Sometimes we just don't know the things to say or the words to ask, but God knows what's in your heart. He just wants you to be willing to give it up. And however you say it, trust me, he'll understand what you mean. But take that time. And when you are ready and you say, yes, I am willing to set this aside and pursue Jesus with all my heart, then you are invited to share in the body and the blood of Jesus. Body given and broken for you. The blood shed for you. And although there is redemption, every single time we ask, every single time we say, I messed up. I tried yesterday. I thought I had it, but man, I messed up again. There is always redemption and forgiveness if you ask Christ. It's not a license to go out and do it again. But he knows us better than we know ourselves, and so he knows that we will. But if in your heart you're saying, I want to be a disciple of Jesus more than I want anything else in my life, then that's his invitation to you. Come to me. Take my burden. My burden is light. So when you are ready, you can start moving around and take communion. We'll be up here at the crosses as self-serve if you want to do that. Um, But let's just take this time and let this worship just sink into our hearts. Amen? Thank you, guys.